Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. D-Day was a massive operation, and anything of that size and scope is bound to have mistakes. And I'm not talking about individual mistakes like a soldier heading the wrong direction once they hit the beach or even somebody disobeying a direct order. I'm talking high level, strategic mistakes when it came to planning, resourcing, execution. It's easy for us now, almost 80 years after the fact, to look back and say, hey, you know, you should have done this. Or maybe things would have been different if you would have done that. There's a lot of scrutiny, but I think it's valid. Because in combat, mistakes cost lives. We've spent a little while here talking about the landings on Omaha Beach, but I don't think we get the full grasp of that story without diving into the casualties, the losses suffered. So today we're going to take a little bit of a different path, and rather than talk about an individual, we're going to talk about a unit. Alpha Company of the 116th Infantry Regiment landed in the first wave on Omaha Beach and in less than 10 minutes were nearly entirely wiped out. The 116th Infantry Regiment was part of the 29th Infantry Division, National Guard units, and the Guard would play a major role in the Second World War. The Guard is made up of state militias and can be called into federal service as needed, and it's a really easy way for the United States to kind of bolster our armed forces, either in anticipation of a conflict or after the conflict breaks out. National Guard units in the United States would start to be mobilized in August of 1940. That's early. Kind of like seeing the writing on the wall. The 29th Infantry Division would be activated in February of 1941. They were made up of units from Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. And by October of 1942, would ship over to England in preparation for the invasion. Now think about that. This is a National Guard unit that has already been activated for some time and is now in England doing their exercises, not final prep, but close to it get ready to jump across the English Channel and invade invade France, right? You know, when we look at these units in the Second World War, I'm guilty of seeing National Guard scribbled down next to one like the 29th and say, okay, that's a different type unit than the 1st Infantry Division. But the reality is by the time many of these units got into combat, they had been activated, training, and preparing for so long that They had just as much, if not more, experience than many of the newly stood up infantry divisions across the military. Now, the 116th Infantry Regiment hailed mostly from Virginia. An alpha company that we're going to talk about today being in the first wave. Well, much of the 116th is in the first wave. We're going to talk specifically about alpha company. There's a unique part to alpha company. The unit is just over 200 strong. And 35 members of the company hailed from a small town in Virginia known as Bedford. Bedford was only about 4,000 people during the Second World War. So for 35 to serve is already a big number. But for them all to be in the same division, regiment, battalion, company. I mean, over 10% of the unit is made up of one town. That's crazy. Now... There's a bright side there where these young men get to go fight together. They get to train together. There's some, you know, 
friendships that began before the war and before their service that are going to carry on during some of their more trying times. But there's a downside as well to having that many men from one small town in one unit. We'll get back to that. Now, jumping forward to Omaha Beach, it's split between two divisions. If you jump up to Utah, you'll see the entire beach was the responsibility of the 4th Infantry Division. On Omaha, it's split down the middle. The 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One, is tasked with taking the eastern portion of the beach. We've talked about a few of their stories already. The western side of the beach is assigned to the 29th Infantry Division. Specifically, Alpha Company of the 116th is headed to the Dog Green Sector. That is really the westernmost sector slated for landings. There's still a Charlie Sector further west, but there's not a plan to land anybody there. There will be soldiers landing there, but that wasn't one of the major, that wasn't one of the focuses in the initial waves. Now, in the Dog Green Sector is the D1 draw, or the Veerville draw. And It's an important one. It's important to both sides. The plan at a high level is that we'll send in the tanks first. Remember the DD tanks that that can swim. They put up their canvas, you know, skirt, if you will, and swim ashore. And the plan is they hit the beaches first, provide suppressing fires for the infantry coming in just behind them. As well, let's walk through the entire plan. So then Alpha Company comes ashore. They, They maybe move onto the bluffs, maybe clear some of the blockhouses. And then seven minutes after Alpha Company lands, the engineers hit the beach. And the engineers are designed to blow gaps in the obstacles. Remember mines, Belgian gates, the hedgehogs, blow those out of the way to create wider landing zones for larger ships to come in. Those larger ships will come in bringing more tanks, vehicles, a lot of reinforcements in terms of infantry, maybe even field artillery pieces. So you can see on paper how this lines up, right? One, two, three, four, one after the other. It plays out well, but the story on Omaha is that things did not go well. As we know, those tanks in the first wave, hardly any made it ashore. They launched too far off, some three kilometers from shore, really only able to to swim two kilometers in many cases. The Waves were four to six feet at times, and the tanks had only been tested with waves of one foot. Many sunk with their crew trapped inside. None of them made it ashore before the infantry. What that means is that when Alpha Company comes ashore, they're going to be the first to do so. Now, I mentioned the D1 draw is important. It's important because it's the only paved road off of Omaha Beach. And the Allies recognize that and want to take it. The Germans recognize that and decide that it needs to be pretty heavily defended because it's probably going to be an objective if the Allies decide to land on Omaha. Surrounding the D1 exit, we have three strong points or resistance nests. WN-71, 72, and 73. WN-71 is made up of grenade launchers, machine guns looking out over the beach. WN-73 has a 75-millimeter anti-tank cannon as well as multiple machine guns. And WN-72, sitting right at the mouth of the draw, closest to the beach, arguably the best-constructed strongpoint all up and down Omaha, houses one of two 88-millimeter cannons looking east over the rest of Omaha, as well as a 50-millimeter anti-tank gun and countless machine guns. 
Now, these strong points aren't just those blockhouses, right? We've talked about this before. There's layers of barbed wire and minefields and firing ports and mortar positions, and, and dozens of men could make up any one of these. These strong points were targeted in the pre-invasion bombardment. And there were a couple of ways that we went about doing that. The first was the naval bombardment. Now, this is one of those things that we can look back and say, you know, you should have done that differently. You should have shelled them for days. But there was a problem. One of the major concerns with the D-Day landings was making sure that we maintained the element of surprise. It was considered... Planners thought that this could be an absolute failure if the Germans were able to mass and counterattack before we had a beachhead. So keeping the reserve German forces further inland or guessing where the landing might come was of the utmost importance. If we started shelling Omaha, Utah, Gold, Juno, Sword a week prior, the tip's our hand. The invasion could fail. I mean, we might knock out some of these beach defenses, but we might have panzer divisions waiting for us inland. It's a middle ground you have to strike. I mean, the German defenders, in most cases, well, in all cases, didn't know that this was the actual invasion until the sun came up and they look out over the English Channel and see the Allied Armada getting ready to open fire. I mean, it was that level of surprise that was needed. But then there's the balancing act of you want to... The soldiers have to come in at low tide, at a rising tide. We'll get more of that later. And you want them to land early so they have all day to establish the beachhead, right? That means that the Navy only has about an hour's worth of fire support before they need to lift fire for the infantry coming ashore. They do the best they can. There's not a lot of ships providing fire support for a beach the size of Omaha, they have less than an hour to do so. And to be blunt, it didn't have that much of an effect. The German defenses were incredibly well built. And many of them took direct, if not near direct hits, and were still fully operational by the time the first wave hit the beach. We also had bombers. And there were over 400 bombers that came in overhead towards the end of the naval bombardment set to just devastate the Omaha Beach defenses. The problem the bombers ran into as well. Again, this is another one where you could say, why didn't we bomb Omaha for two weeks? It's that element of surprise. I mean, the day prior, on June 5th, we were carrying out bombing runs in Pas de Calais, trying to still trying to confuse Hitler and his leadership that, to think that the invasion might come there. So we can't focus everything on Normandy. We can't tip our hands. So the bombers come in, and as the bombers are coming in, the troops have already begun moving towards shore in their landing craft. They're not ashore yet. But this is, again, one of those things, put it on paper, you know, the naval bombardment begins, the, the bombers come overhead, there's going to be rocket fire, and you want to do all of these just right, get them just right. So when the troops hit the beach, they have the, you know, most things in their favor at that time. So as the bombers are coming in overhead, there's pretty dense cloud cover, and there's concern about hitting the landing craft, hitting our ships out at sea. So when they cross on the land over the English Channel, cross on the land on Omaha Beach, they hesitate just for a moment. It doesn't take long, though, at that elevation, at those speeds, hesitation before dropping those bombs because they are concerned for friendly fire, which makes sense. That hesitation caused almost all of their bombs to fall 
miles inland. I think I saw something like three bombs total hit in the vicinity of Omaha Beach. I mean, it was almost irrelevant. To, it was th- that much, that much of a miss. Finally, as the troops are coming ashore, when they're about a, th- when they're, as they begin their, their movement towards shore, there's going to be rockets fired. It's kind of the last bombardment before they hit the beach. These rockets were wildly off. Almost all of those landed in the surf well short of the shoreline. So the naval gunfire was hammering the beaches, but we'll find out didn't actually do a whole lot of work. The bombers missed deep, just bombed the countryside, killed some cows. The rockets all missed short, falling into the water. That means by the time that Alpha Company of the 116th and anyone else in the first wave hits the beach, it's going to be essentially untouched. Now, Alpha Company is set to land directly between these three strong points, WN-71, 72, and 73. The plan as these first waves hit the beach is a company makes up about seven landing craft, and these landing craft be spaced out across the sector. And then the next sector down, you have another company, seven landing craft. And then you just, you know, in a perfect world, everybody hits the beach at the same time, relatively well spaced out. It's a lot of targets for the Germans to zero in on, but that plays into the Allies' advantage, right? A lot of people moving on the beach means a lot of targets, means some of them are going to make it through. Due to the tides, the confusion, the wind, when Alpha Company neared Dog Green, G and F companies were out of sight. Scheduled to land at Dog White, they both pushed all the way down into the Dog Red, even easy green sector. At the 400-yard mark, Alpha Company starts taking fire, pretty effective fire. One of the seven landing craft takes a direct hit, kills everyone on board, and sinks. Another landing craft disappears. Hit a mine, a direct hit from an artillery round, it's gone. Two out of seven landing craft in this company, gone before they even come close to the shore. The five remaining landing craft hit the beach, the dog green sector of Omaha Beach at 636 on June 6, 1944, and begin to unload. Now, with so little targets in front of these three strong points, the machine guns in the bunkers, as well as the anti-tank guns, are able to zero in pretty effectively on the doors of the landing craft. And as soon as they open or, or the ramps drop, the machine gun fire starts raking the inside of the landing craft. Soldiers are forced to make decisions on how to get out. Some climb over the sides, not as easy as it sounds with all that gear. Others start diving forward and having to climb over the bodies of their dead and wounded brothers. And many drowned. I mean, they're in water that was between knee, it could be two feet to six feet high in places. It wasn't a straight line in the shore. You know, it didn't go six feet, five feet, four, three. It kind of, kind of varied throughout the shore or, you know, under the water. Soldiers would dive into the water to get out of the way of the machine gun bullets ripping into their landing craft. And many didn't come back up. They had so much gear on that when they got to, you know, six feet of water, they just couldn't do anything to get back up for a breath. Many, many soldiers in this first wave 
would drown before firing a shot. Think of that. It's a loss in this type of assault that's just hard to comprehend. You know, um, not one shot. Drown before firing a shot. Now, there's not a lot of cover on the beach. And sometimes the men who even make it forward a little ways find themselves relatively stranded and have to move back. They start using the beach obstacles for cover. The metal hedgehogs, the Belgian gates, the the teller mines, the poles with teller mines on them. But there's a problem. The tide kept coming in. Remember, the Allies wanted to land at low tide because the obstacles would be exposed so they could see them. But they also needed it to be on a rising tide because when the landing craft came in, if it was a receding tide, they'd be at risk of being stuck. So it had to be a rising tide so the landing craft always could back on out. What that meant was that soldiers taking cover behind some of these obstacles had to keep moving because if they stayed there long, they'd start to find themselves underwater. I think I saw somewhere that the tide on Omaha, it's about 400 yards from low tide to high tide, beach that you have to traverse. And I think I read somewhere that it rate was uh, was rising at one meter an hour. I mean, it's no joke. It's moving pretty fast. You could, you could It's moving fast enough that you sit there and watch it. You know, each one coming, each wave coming in a little higher, a little higher, a little higher. And this gets into one of those aspects of warfare that we don't think about a lot, or don't hear about a lot. One of the nasty little pieces that was a reality for many on Omaha Beach and many in Alpha Company, the 116th. Soldiers that landed in that first wave were wounded severely in some cases. And they couldn't walk, sometimes couldn't even move, and would take whatever cover they could, maybe behind obstacles, or maybe they're just stuck out there in the open. Now, if you're on a traditional battlefield, you wait. You wait for a medic. I mean, there's stories in World War I where people were stranded in no man's land for days waiting for relief, but they just didn't move. They just could stay in one spot. The soldiers that couldn't move and had to stay in one spot were either drugged to safety by their brothers or before long were swept away in the tide and drowned. That tide's coming in fast. And there were quite a few soldiers that couldn't move forward and were pulled out to the ocean. Dog green is a killing field. But that's what it was designed to do, right? If you're Germany setting up your defenses, it's doing the trick. The defenses on dog green are working. There's machine guns and indirect fire raking the beach and snipers set up on the high ground. We're talking 100-foot cliffs in some areas. Snipers set up on the high ground to look for those individual soldiers hiding behind the beach obstacles and take them out one after the other after the other. As the soldiers from Alpha Company are taking cover as best they can, they recognize this issue with the tide, right? And between dodging snipers' bullets and mortar rounds and fire from 88s, they're running back out into the ever-encroaching surf to pull their brothers forward. Now, there weren't, there weren't a lot of targets just a few minutes in to the landings on Dog Green, 
So when these soldiers would run back to try to pull wounded to safety, in many cases, they and or the wounded soldier were targeted and killed. By the time the second wave was set to land at 7 o'clock that morning, so about 25 minutes later, less than one-third of Alpha Company was even around. Bravo Company is set to land at 07, with Delta Company coming in at 0710. But by 7.20, Dog Green Sector is declared closed. Even from the beaches offshore, even from the ships offshore a little ways, they can see that the beach and the water have turned red. It looks more like a shipwreck than it does a battlefield. And all the generals and admirals can see through their binoculars from a distance are equipment floating in the surf and men dead and alive, parts of men floating up to the shore or being moved up to the shoreline and being pulled out to sea. A comment was made that it was suicidal to continue. It looked like on Dog Green, the Americans had hit a wall. Now at 7.20 with Dog Green declared closed, Charlie Company, along with members of the 5th Rangers, would be diverted to the east. They would land between Dog Green and Dog White Sector. This is the wave that General Norman Coda came in on that we talked about last episode. They would find some relief. It was a better area than where Alpha Company landed and throughout the day would work their way up the bluffs and around the backs of some of these strong points. Now, the casualties on D-Day are unknown. We have estimates. Usually on Omaha, you'll see something like 2,000 to 5,000 killed that day. Why? Why are we here 80 years later not knowing the exact number killed? It seems like we should have that dialed in at this point, right? Well, there are a lot of factors that went into play here. For starters, numbers were reported late. Usually casualty reports were rolled up daily, but there was absolute chaos on Omaha. And in many cases, these reports didn't come in for days, days later. But think about it. If you're a wounded soldier, think about a soldier in Alpha Company that's wounded during his assault, treated by people in the second wave and evacuated and dies three days later. Where's the person accounting for that? How does that how is that a clean reporting channel in this chaos? And that's not even getting into how many of these poor soldiers were swept out to sea and died, drowned, never to be recovered. We had soldiers that would find another unit, link up with another unit and fight with them for days. They Were they reported missing? I mean, they, they came about later. For any of the soldiers that were missing, often the, the procedure is a year and a day after they're declared missing, they can be confirmed dead, which means that if the soldiers on D-Day didn't know where one of their buddies was and had to wait a week or two or three, and then finally said, hey, he's missing, it was a year and a day after that he was declared dead. That means we have soldiers marked as dead in June, July, August of 1945. There were actually D-Day casualties. So we might never know the actual numbers lost on Omaha. We do know, or what I should say, an estimate is probably the better way to say it, 
is that within the first 10 minutes, Alpha Company of the 116th was completely combat ineffective. And by the end of the day, only 18 of 230 were not casualties. One more time. 18 out of 230 from Alpha of the 116th were not casualties. Killed, wounded, or missing in action. We talked about the fact that so many members of this unit came from the small town of Bedford, Virginia. And there's the bright side of being able to enter into the service with people you know, and your families can talk about what you're doing and maybe keep tabs with where you're going, right? The downside of that is when your tight-knit small unit is the first to land in maybe the deadliest sector on Omaha Beach. 19 men from Bedford, Virginia were killed in the opening minutes of D-Day. They suffered the highest percentage killed on that day for any town in the United States. 19 out of 4,000 minutes. In recognition of that sacrifice, if you go to visit the National D-Day Memorial today, you'll find yourself in Bedford, Virginia. Now, we've talked about the 1st Infantry Division as well as the 29th Infantry Division, but there was also another group tasked with a couple objectives on D-Day, the Elite Army Rangers. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.